Hey guys, we're so excited to share this message with you on the Center Set podcast. My name is Ethan and I lead worship here at Center Set. We'd love for you to download our app so that you can keep up with all that is happening in our community. Text Center Set to 77977 to download. Good evening, good evening. Who's excited for church? If we have not met, my name is Ali and my beautiful wife and I, we started this crazy place called Bull Church four years ago with a simple dream. We wanted to create a place where not only Christians could grow in their faith, but listen, unchurched people could explore their faith. So if you're new to church, maybe first time in a long time, welcome. You are VIP. Believe me when I say that. And uh, every summer, we try to do a collection of talks and uh, through a book of the Bible because you need the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And for, for the entire month of June and the entire month of July, we've been walking through a collection of talks called Christians Gone Wild. And yes, that is a play on words. And we've been walking through a, a book of the Bible called the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, it, it has been a very heavy sermon collection of talks. And we've been talking about, you know, how to be a man and uh, biblical sexuality and how to overcome temptation. And last week, one of my favorite sermons, Don't Be a Baby. Anybody love last week? Uh, today's going to be one of those days. Again. I'm going to be very direct, in your face. Some of you who are religious, your booty's going to be like, mm, a little bit. That's okay. Welcome to Bull Church. You're going to learn about Jesus and be uncomfortable. Uh, if you see this, the text on the screen, someone shout amen. I'm going to read a lot of text, so stick with me. Now, for the matters you wrote about, Paul is the author, and he's writing to a church because they wrote him a bunch of questions. Is it good for men to not have sexual relations with a woman? But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should, thank you, Jesus, should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other. And all the men said, amen. Each other. Except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. The only reason you're not having sex is you're praying. I didn't write this. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, the other has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to be married than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she is to remain or unmarried or she or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, not I, but the Lord. If a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the believing, unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such, in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That is a long set of text. I want to preach around this idea. Marriage is hard, but it's worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it. Let me pray real quick. 
And then let's get started. Thank you, Jesus, for this word. It's heavy, but it's good. We love you, Lord. Your word is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, God. You bring life through your word. You created the world through the word. And God, you regenerate us and save us through your word. We're grateful, God, for your word that speaks life over our broken and dead bodies. God, your word is the highest authority in our life. We walked in one way, Jesus, we want to walk out another. We want to love like you. We want to talk like you. And everybody who believes that, everybody said? Everybody said a little bit louder. Everybody said? There was a husband and a wife, and the husband was having panic attacks, overwhelmed with anxiety, so much so that he's beginning to have chest pains. So the husband and wife run to the ER room. They're doing all these diagnostic tests. They're, they're checking the CT scan. Is he going to die? Is he having a heart attack? What's going on? Imagine this husband is laying down on this stretcher in the hospital, and the doctor comes in and says, ma'am, can I speak with you in private? So they go to the lobby, and she goes, husband, oh, ma'am, I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is your husband is going to die. The good news is, though, he can be saved only on one condition. For the next year, you can't have him have any stress. When the house is dirty, you have to clean it. When the groceries are empty, you have to go. Whenever he wants food, you got to make his best favorite food. And any time, I mean any time, he wants sex, you can't say no. And you got to do this for one whole year. Do you understand she goes, yes. They walk back into the room, and the husband goes, what did he tell you? She goes, you're going to die. <laughs> Why? Because marriage is hard, but it's worth it. And I need to point this out. Through this collection of talks, we've been talking about so many subjects. and That life is messy. How do you follow Jesus in a jacked-up church? Come on, and, and churches are not buildings, they're not programs, they're people. And people are messy, which implies and is very clear, churches are messy. And in the same way, marriages are not about rings, they're about photographs and honeymoons and parties. Marriages are about people, and people, listen, are messy. And the book of 1 Corinthians is this letter that Paul writes who started the church four years ago. And now these Christians are going wild. And if you're new to this collection of talks, and maybe you're new today, wondering where is 1 Corinthians 2,000 years ago, imagine Las Vegas, Amsterdam, and Burning Man all getting together and having a kid. Crazy. That's Corinth. And, and, and every, every major city in America has a reputation. D.C. for politics, L.A. for Hollywood and media, Silicon Valley is known for tech, New York for finance. Corinth was known for its sexual craziness. So much so that the language changed. That it would be an act of, oh, you're, you're a Corinthian girl. Like they would describe you as one of those people because of your sexual immorality. And now imagine Paul comes to this crazy city and begins to preach the gospel. And these people begin to get saved from not bad to good, death to life. Amen? And now they have all this drama. They're Christians, but their relations are complicated. And they're writing, Pastor, Ali, Pastor Paul, my, my husband doesn't lead the family. All he wants is sex. What do I do? There's another group of people writing, Pastor Paul, my husband went to the temple and slept with a prostitute. Do we still got to be married? And there's another group of people, they're singles, and they're just looking around at this craziness going, OMG, who wants to be married? And Paul writes this letter to three groups of people. I want to preach to all three today. You guys ready? Ready to be encouraged and challenged and inspired? Let me speak to the first group of people. The first people is this. 
People with no relationship. These are single people. If I get everyone to stand up for a second, I need to do something very important. If I get everyone to stand up. While you're standing up, I'm going to drink some water because I'm extremely thirsty. Can I have the married people to sit down? Got him. Look around. You're welcome. This is called free advertising. You can sit down. If you're upset with me, please email me at yasmin at center. Be nasty to me. I can hate it. Paul is going to write to some single people. Listen, in the scriptures, there's very little advice. What Paul says to single people, this is one of those times where it's very clear what he's saying. So if you're single, you better be taking notes. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6. I wish that all of you were as I am. In a moment, I'm going to tell you Paul is single, but he has no desire to mingle. And I'll tell you why. Each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift. The other has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to, better to marry than to burn with passion. I've done seven weddings at Bowl Church. It's an honor. That's why I had all of you single people stand up. I wanted more singles to get married in this church. But I've never stood there at the altar in front of all the families and friends like, hey, guys, we're gathered here because this guy right here is tired of cold showers. His pants are on fire and he wants sex. That's why we're here. That's what the text says. Like in our culture, we think life begins after you get married. That's why every Disney movie, how does it end? They get in the carriage and they go into the sunset. It's not the marriage that they celebrate, it's the wedding day. Because that's the pinnacle of your life, the day you get married. That's when you begin to live. And Paul is trying to teach you, no, 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 no. Guys, let me remind you, the guy that we follow the guy that we worship never once took his pants off, never was married, never wrote a book. He actually never had sex. And he lived the most fulfilling life in human history. Listen, singleness is not a curse. You're not a second-class citizen. Your life does not begin after you say, I do. It begins right now when you follow Jesus. Amen? And when I was in seminary, I remember we just have this like negative view towards Christians who are single. I remember there was this spiritual gift test I took at seminary, and there's two dudes in my class, and one, he took the test. He's like, oh, my gosh. I'm like, what? I'm like, what'd you get? He's like, martyrdom. I was like, man, you can only use that gift one time, and then you're dead, right? <laughs> and there was another dude who took the same test. He's like, oh, my gosh. I'm like, what did you get? He's like, singleness. And the guy with martyrdom, like, Psh, I'd rather die. <laughs> like, that's our attitude towards singleness. Like, we would rather die than be single. And yet Paul says you can live a fulfilling life single. And he continues. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. How can he please the Lord? But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. How can he please his wife? And his interests are divided. Unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affair. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. How can she please her husband? What is he saying? He's saying when you're single, you have one focus, ministry. But when you're married, it's ministry and marriage. How can I please God and my spouse? Not that it's bad. Not that it's, it's just harder. Your interests are divided. And then he says this. This is the one piece of advice. I'm saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you. And here's the advice. But that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, if you're single, you want to write this down. Because Paul is giving you some advice until you get married. And I wrote down like this. Single people, shift your focus. Shift your focus. 
And this is like a slap in the face. This is like so unromantic. Like we were raised on Disney movies and The Notebook and uh, what's that? Sleepless in Seattle. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm a kid of the 80s. Anybody a kid of the 80s? Greatest generation. One of the biggest rom-coms was in 1997, a man named Tom Cruise dating, breaking up with Renee Zellweger. He breaks into this house, right? There's like 12 girls all drinking wine, complaining about relationships. Just pours out his heart and says one of the most famous lines in cinematic history, you complete me. And every girl's like, oh. And then she says, you had me at hello. And what this movie is pushing and every other Disney movie is, your life is incomplete until you find the one. And that all of your focus, you have to find this person. There's pressure. You better, you better go to every party. You better go to every service and see that. Because if you don't find that person, life is incomplete. And I've had this conversation five years ago with one of my best friends. And I, I, I've been waiting five years to preach this. So if Amanda, you're watching online, this is for you, girl. And I said it like this. The Bible shatters the myth of the one. It shatters the myth of the one. Let me tell you three ways it does. Number one, problems. Someone say problems. When you believe the myth of the one, you think the moment you get married, you have zero problems. And often what happens is the moment you do have problems, you're like, oh my gosh, the reason we're having problems, I married the wrong person. So what I got to do is I got to divorce this person and find the, the, the real one. And listen, I hear this all the time. Oh my gosh, Pastor Ali, I married the wrong person. I'm like, why do you think that? Because every time I'm around them, I'm a jerk. I'm like, boo-boo, no, you've always been a jerk. We just have witnesses now. Because think of yourself like a tub of toothpaste. Marriage is the squeeze to the jerk that's inside of you. It was always there. Now this person is just drawing out what was always there. And often we think, no, 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 Pastor Ali, no, no, you don't understand. I'm a good person. I married the wrong person. And the scriptures would say, the problem with your marriage is you. You don't need a new marriage. You need to be a new person. Jesus needs to make you a new person. Second problem, second reason why the myth of the one, no, 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 go back, please go back. The second reason why the myth of the one is broken, completeness. Someone say completeness. We believe this lie that, oh my gosh, you complete me. And that when I find this person, oh my gosh, that's when life, oh, oh, that's when it becomes good. You're going to heal me. You're going to complete me. You're going to make life amazing. And what happens is, when, the, when you begin to idolize this person, when you begin to put them on a pedestal, Jonathan Edwards says, whatever you idolize, you will demonize. That's why most marriages end at year eight. Do you know why? Because you realize this person is cray-cray, and they're not changing. And you become hopeless that you actually believe this lie, that I thought you were the one, and now I realize that you're not. All because you thought they were going to do something that only God can do. Listen, there's no man that can complete you. There's no one building a house. His name is not Ryan Gosling. His name is Jesus. And he's preparing a home for you in heaven. You don't have to say amen. I'm coming after you. And the third reason why the myth of the one breaks down is there's this pressure. You ever hang out with single people? They have like constant FOMO. They're going to every party. They're going to, and they, if there's a guy there, oh my God, oh my, I need to sit down. Oh my God, I didn't see him. Oh my God, oh my God. Because there's this pressure. You have to find him. And if you don't, you're going to miss out on the greatness of life. Because life doesn't begin until you say, I do. 
and the scriptures shatter this with this truth right here. Next slide. Shift your focus from finding to becoming. Proverbs 28, 24 verse 18 says, who can find a good wife? He who finds a good wife finds a good thing. And it's asking this question, who can find a good wife? And he never answers the question. Why? Because you can't do it. Tinder's not going to help you. Coffee and bagel's not going to help you. Hinge's not. I don't even know all these different apps. And we put ourselves out there. Not that those things are bad, but there's this implicit pressure that I need to put myself out there and find that person. And there's this, like, urge. Oh, my gosh, where are they? My life's not complete. And Scripture says there are zero verses on how to find that person. And on every page of your Bible, it tells you how to become that person. Because you want a great marriage? Be a great spouse. You don't find one. You become one. I remember when I was a, a, in youth ministry, not as the pastor, but as the cat. I always describe youth ministry as herding cats. And uh, my old youth pastor was a guy named Pastor Kayvon Tehrani. Anybody know Pastor Kayvon? Love this guy. Love him. He's now the mission pastor at Westgate. And I remember one time we're, like, we're at a youth event. We're playing basketball. And then like four or five guys are eating because we're always eating around Pastor Kayvon. Loves food. And he asked us a question. Hey, guys, can one of you describe to me, like, the ideal woman? I'm like, oh, my gosh. She has to be, like, loving and compassionate like Selena Gomez. Oh. <laughs> she has to be patient like Mother Teresa. And, oh, she has to have the humor of Zoe Deschanel. And, like, we're describing, like, this mythical creature from mythology. And he's like, listen, that sounds like a beast, not a person. He's like, even if that person existed, she would never marry any of you. I'm like, rude. Excuse me. He's like, half of you play video games all day. Half of you don't even have jobs. Half of you watch porn. If that person even existed, she would never marry you. And the idea is so often we're looking for the perfect spouse and we lose the focus of becoming the perfect spouse. You want a great marriage? Shift your focus from finding to becoming. And really the goal, this is the goal for all single people. I wrote it down like this. The, become the person, comma, that the person you're looking for is looking for. It's a tongue t- twister. Become the person that the person you're looking for is looking for. Why? Because the scriptures don't tell you how to find that person. The scriptures tell you how to become that person. I remember Pastor Kayvon said, well, how do I like, find a marriage, Pastor Kayvon? In the same conversation, he goes, this is what you're going to do, Allie. Run hard after God. I said, okay. And then run, like discover what your pace with God is. I said, okay, okay, what are you saying? And then he's like, after you found your pace, look to your left and to your right. And if you see someone of the opposite sex, marry that person. I'm like, stupid. <laughs> run hard after God. Five, fast forward five years. I'm 30 years old. I'm at an Iranian church. I'm pastoring the English side. We had 20 people, and after I put my head down, running hard after God as fast as I can, doing everything I can as a full-time engineer, trying to grow this small little church, I looked to my left and to my right, and I'm like, very nice, alike. <laughs> Who did I see? My spicy chili pepper. <laughs> I didn't find her. I became the person that attracted her. Single people, don't be looking. Not that you shouldn't put yourself out there, but remove that pressure of finding that person. Amen? Let me speak to another group of people. Group of people number two. 
the person, the people with a messy relationship. These are the people on social media. It's complicated. Right? And Pastor Az and I, we, disciple, we counsel people all the time. It's always, Pastor Ali, I married the wrong person. Why? He doesn't lead us spiritually. All he wants to do is have sex with me. Help. And then I hear the husband's side. I provide. I come home. I take care of the kids. All I want is to, for her to hold. I don't even want sex. I just want her to hold my hand, Pastor Ali. I think I married the wrong person. Paul is going to speak to these people. And, I, and to explain this concept, I need to show you an image. If you're not taking it, you want to write this image down. Two years ago, our counselor showed us this image. This image changed everything about our relationship. At the very bottom is Christians. Then the next layer is friends. The next layer is spouses. This is the relational structure of a biblical marriage. Let me show you. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. Creates the animals, creates the oceans, and then he creates Adam. And every day that he creates these things, he, he, he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then Adam, the Bible says, walks with God in the cool of the garden. Before you're ever married, the first thing you are is, number one, a Christian. The foundation of any marriage is, number one, your faith. You pursue your number two, pursuing your number one with your number two. That, number two is friends. See, Adam is lonely. God said, it is good, it is good, it is good, but it's not good. One time before sin into the picture, it is not good for a man to be alone. And he says, I'm going to create a parakletos for him. It's this word helper or companion, a.k.a. friend. So before Adam and Eve have sex, they're Christians and they are friends. Number two. Then God walks Eve down the aisle and they do what husband and wife do. It's awesome. But often what we don't realize is the issues at the top are really issues because of the, the bottom is broken. Let me explain it this way. Uh, four years ago, we, before we started this church, my wife and I, we sold our home in Sunnyvale. We used to live near Moffett Field, about 15 miles away, and we sold it to move to this community. And that home that we sold, it was a miracle that we sold. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide the problem with the house, and I'm going to explain it. I want you guys to figure it out, because I'm not a handyman. I can't, and some of, you, some of you women are more handy than me. Let me just be very honest, and I'm okay with that. You'd walk into this house, and half the doors were, like, stuck. You have to, like, push it open because the hinge, the, the frame was off. Some of the windows, there'd always be a gap. They didn't, like, fully close. Like, this, every room, if you look at the ceiling, there'd be, like, a hairline fracture. And in one of the rooms in the corner of the house, if you put a tennis ball, it would roll to the center of the house. It was, it was nice. I can put my chair and roll back to me. What are the problems with my house? What do you think it is? Someone shout it out loud foundation. See, you guys are way more handy than me. The foundation. So really all the symptoms at the top of the house were really issues because the bottom of the house is broken. Listen, all the problems that you have in your marriage, lack of friendship, lack of intimacy, is really because you're just a bad Christian. And that's the foundation. For example, let me say it this way. Imagine for a moment that you're in a marriage where you don't really love God. You're friends, and you have sex, but there's no love, there's no peace, there's no kindness, there's no gentleness, there's no self-control. And you're like, where's my godly husband? And it's because it's lacking. It's not that you don't love each other, it's that you're not a good Christian. Imagine for a moment, you remove the friends. You're, you love Jesus, and you provide for your wife, and you, you love her, but you don't really care about her. You don't really know what her hobbies are. 
and all you want is sex. What happens in that kind of relationship is it, you, you want physical intimacy. You want her to be naked with her body, but you're not willing to be naked with your personality. The, the great theologian C.S. Lewis said this. He said, sex is about naked bodies. Friendship is about naked personalities. Husbands, do you laugh with her? Do you cry with her? Do you listen to her? Do you talk to her? Do you have fun with her? Some of you on our marriage words, you never share your heart, but you want her to share her body. And the problem with all of your intimacy is that you're not really her friend. In the same way that single people had a goal, you shift from finding to becoming married people. You want to write this down. Here's your goal. You should work for your spouse to be your best friend. See, my goal in putting that up there is I want some of you to go home and fight. No, 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 you don't understand, Pastor Ali. I went to high school with this one guy. We've been friends for like 20 years. I've only known my husband for five. No, not anymore. No, 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 you don't understand. There's this girl at work that I'm not attracted to. I dump my heart out of her. No, not anymore. No, you don't understand. There's my sister. We're like best friends. Not anymore. The moment you become a Christian, the moment you become married, you draw a circle in the sand, and it's so easy for us to think, you know what, I step into it, and there's physical intimacy, but it's also emotional. Your spouse is called to be your parakletos, your helper, your companion, your best friend. I've read 10 books on marriage. Very few of them highlight this one idea because the scriptures assume it. They don't need to say it. The Holy Spirit was the best friend of Jesus. Jesus was the best friend of the Holy Spirit. Are you your spouse's best friend? And some of you, you got to have surgery. You have to cut some people out of your life. And listen, you get to choose your pain. You want the pain of surgery or the pain of cancer? You pick that pain. Let me try to make this as practical as I can. To the husbands, let me speak to you very practically. Number one, go, go back to the image. Go back to the image. At the bottom is to be a Christian. Do you want to flirt with your wife? Here's a pickup line. Honey, do you want to get dressed up? Do you want someone to watch our kids so we can go pray in tongues? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Let's go to bold church. Come on. Married couples who attend church regularly have the highest sex life, most satisfying sex life. So the best pickup line is, honey, do you want to go to church? <laughs> Number two, be her fr- what are your wife's current hot? Not what they were 20 years ago when you got married or when you first started dating. What are they right now? Listen, I have to constantly try to keep up with my spouse. She is, every year she's different. Right now, she's all about the macros. Yeah, you're laughing. I'm crying right now. Because a meal is a meal prep with a scale, and I have to sit down and like wait for her to measure everything. And by the time she's done, I'm like starving, I'm dead. I'm... <laughs> because my whole life, I'm on a seafood diet. I see food, I eat food. If anything, I eat, and some Laker fan in LA is getting fat in Jesus' name. I've never counted calories. But because my wife is my best friend, I flirt very differently now. I go, honey, look at this lean cut of steak. 22 grams of protein. Only five grams of fat, honey. Yes, after I cook it, you can take all my clothes off. (laughs) Why? Because she's my best friend. So what she loves, I love. My challenge for you is, do you know what your wife loves? Will you do the hard work 
to be her best friend. If you want a great marriage, it's not about finding, it's about becoming. Ladies, this is super easy. If your husband does level one and level two, treat him with something in level three. Good boy, yes. <laughs> we're like dogs, and we're not offended if you treat us like one. We'll learn very quickly. You, you reward us, we will repeat the pattern. <laughs> Single people, shift from finding to becoming. Married people, the goal is to make your spouse your best friend. This next one is probably the heaviest of the three. And it's like this. People with a broken relationship. People with a broken relationship. See, in the book of 1 Corinthians, there were people that they had spent their whole life living that frat boy life. And then God came to them and revealed that he, Jesus is God. And they gave their heart to Jesus and they became a Christian. And they wanted their spouse to experience what they experienced. But there were so many in the Corinthian church they didn't both experience that. And the other spouse is like, I'm out. I want to get drunk and have sex with whoever I want. I don't want this life. And there were hundreds of people in the Corinthian church that were being abandoned by their spouse. And then there would be other spouses where they, they both got saved, but they, they were in the church, but they still lived like they were in the world. And they, the husbands would still visit prostitutes. Like, well, is that a bad thing? Like, did I do anything wrong? And the spouse would write to Paul, Paul, what am I supposed to do? Is this marriage over? And this third set of people is really hindered around this question. When is divorce biblically acceptable? I just need to acknowledge this is going to be a very heavy, like, five minutes. And I know that this entire collection of talks has been just me boldly, because we're a bold church, proclaiming God's truth. First week, we talked about why go to church. We talked about all the reasons why you should go to church. Second, we talked about what does it mean to be a biblical man. And we talked about temptation. And then we talked about biblical sexuality. And last week, I almost titled the term how to take your diaper off. But I named it, don't be a baby. I'm not afraid of telling you the truth. I'm not, listen, I'm not going to stand before God. Like, I know you wrote these things, but because I'm selfish, God. Because I didn't want people to not like me. I withheld telling them the truth. I'm sorry. I, I'm more afraid of Jesus than I am of you. So I got to say some things that you're going to want me to explain away, and I can't. This is Matthew 19. This is the words of Jesus. Haven't you read, he, he replied, this is Jesus speaking, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I know in our culture, the highest supreme law of the land is the Supreme Court. And Jesus is saying, I don't really care what the law says. I'm the supreme king of the universe. And he's defining marriage as male and female. That's very unpolitically correct in our culture. So they are no longer two but one. See, in our culture, when we get hungry, we eat. When we get thirsty, we drink. And when we're horny, we have sex. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Sex is way more than physical. It's spiritual. And actually, it's a mystery. Why? Because two become one. It doesn't even make sense. There's like, you become a different thing. It's not one plus one is two. It's two become one. You become united in a way that you were not alone. And then he says, therefore, what God has joined, someone say joined, together, let no one separate. It's this Greek word for covenant. 
In our culture, we don't understand the difference between covenant and contract. Contract is what you do when you go to a Toyota dealership or wherever you buy your car, and they give you a car, and you give them a down payment, and then they say, this is our car, but as long as you contract to promise to pay those monthly payments, you can keep our car. But the moment you stop making payments, the contract is broken and we take the car back. And the theme of a contract is I will do what I promise to do as long as you do what you promise to do. We do this all the time in our life. All, look, with, like my favorite place to go eat food is Chavez Supermarket. It's like a, it's a Mexican supermarket in the back. If you ever find it, it's a little deli, the greatest carne asada burritos of life. It's like this trinity of amazingness. Tasty, spicy, and cheap. It's like God's there. But listen, the moment I find another place that makes a better carne asada burrito, I'm out. The contract is done. Because I'm only promising to eat there as long as they do their end. And if I find someone who does it better, I'm out. Covenant is different. Covenant is like this. I'll do my part, even if you don't do your part. No, 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 what if they, exactly. That's why you can't find the perfect spouse. You gotta become one. You have to be faithful even when they're not. You have to promise to be with them even if they don't wanna be with you. Covenant is way hard. That's why in our state we have no, it's called no fault divorce because they've removed the covenantal language of marriage and now it's contract. You can come out of any time you have irreconcilable differences, you're done. But what I love about the scriptures I love about our relationship with God. He describes our relationship with him as a covenant, not a contract. Which means even though Jesus has irreconcilable differences with us, he doesn't divorce us. He doesn't leave us. He's faithful even when we're not faithful. Anybody grateful for Jesus? And then Jesus gives the condition. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, is this word in Greek called porneia. It's this big shelf. It encompasses everything. Everyone has that drawer in their kitchen where there's like batteries and like highlighters and flashlights. It's your everything drawer. This is the everything sexual word in the Bible. Anything you can think of falls in this category. And Jesus says, if you have sex outside of marriage, that's what ends marriages. Not your mental health, not your inconvenience, not you, you think you married the wrong person. There is one out. They're unfaithful. They're unfaithful. And often what I hear, so often when Pastor Yaz and I counsel people, Pastor Ali, you don't understand. I married the wrong, I can't do it anymore. I'm tired. I'm, I, I need to divorce this person. And they give all the reasons why they need to end it. And, and what you don't realize is, is divorce is not just like you leaving the room and they stay there. I wrote down like this, divorce is like an amputation. Doctors only do it as a last resort. And so often, Pastor, you ask, we ask, did your spouse sleep with someone? No, but I don't love them anymore. And imagine for a moment, let me just illustrate this. Imagine you go to the ER because you sprained your ankle. You walk like, like this because your ankle's all busted up and you go to the doctor and you're like, doctor, I married the wrong ankle. This ankle's holding me back from being the person that God created. I can't do it anymore. I don't love my ankle anymore. Cut it off. 
I don't want my leg anymore. The doctor be like, what? Bro, you sprained your ankle. We don't need to cut you. I don't want it anymore. I can't do life with it anymore. We would never do that at a hospital, but we do that all the time in our relationships. We want out, so we want to cut it off. You only amputate a leg or an arm when it's going to kill you. And I wrote down the goal like this. Here's the goal for every person who has a difficult marriage. Fight for your marriage until death. You fight the way Jesus fought for you. You were unfaithful, and he was the only one at the cross. They all abandoned him. And he still said, they're worth dying for. And there will be moments, I promise you, if it hasn't happened, it's going to happen. You're going to think in your heart, because I've thought it, I married the wrong person. Who is this person? And it's in that moment that God's going to say, that's how I loved you. That's how I loved you. And Jesus never tapped out in his relationship with you. And yes, let me just be very clear. If your spouse cheats, you have an out. But he's going to push you and encourage you not to quit. Because the Bible, Jesus says that if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. And there's not one man who hasn't done that. So really, we've all done it. Let me continue. To the rest, I say this, not I, the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. There's one other situation, one other out that Christians have. It's where you're married to a non-believer and they leave you. They abandon you. And Paul's saying in that situation where they leave and they say, peace out, you have biblical grounds to move on. I know this is heavy. I'm landing the plane. There's one other situation I want to talk about. Go to the next slide. What about abuse? What if Pastor Ali, he hits me? What if he abuses me sexually? And I would say, number one, we're calling the cops. Number two, call me. I'm going to come to your house with five guys, and we'll have that conversation with him. And that's no joke. You're going to beat God's daughter? I'll go to prison for that. I have, I, I'm a brother to two sisters, and I'm a dad of two girls. I will come after any man who hits a wife. I'm okay with that. That doesn't give you grounds, though, for divorce. It gives you grounds for separation. And the hope is that he repents for being a coward. And if he doesn't, we can talk about what that looks like, because he's abandoning his responsibilities. And yes, in that case, where there's unrepentant abuse, you have grounds for divorce. Heavy, I know. Last situation. There are people in this room that say, Pastor Ali, you know, I, I was divorced. Can I get remarried? And listen, I, I got to be very frank, especially with the new people. I'm one of those people. I, I got married at 24 when I was not a Christian. She left, committed adultery, and then I became a believer. And the word of God said, Ali, I, it was a miracle that you became a Christian and I never stopped pursuing you. I want you to wait. Maybe I'll do a miracle in her life. And for seven years, I waited for God on that word for him to maybe do a miracle in her heart that maybe, even though she cheated on me, she would come back. And I did not 
pursue anyone until the age of 30. So I met Pastor Yaz. It was after, listen, my ex remarried. And there's some of you in this room, you're wondering, can I get remarried? Listen, if you have biblical grounds for divorce, you have biblical grounds to remarry. But then there's another category of people. You feel this tension. Uh, Pastor, I'm already remarried. And the first time, I didn't actually have grounds for divorce. What do I do? Are you telling me to divorce the second one and go back to the first one? You don't break a second covenant to obey the first one. This is going to sound very heavy, but in this marriage, you repent and apologize that you shouldn't have broke the first one. And that you love the second one the way Jesus loved you. And I, there's a third category of people. And I want to encourage some of you. There are some of you in this room, you are divorced, and you walk around with a big D on your chest. Divorced. I know because I walked with that shame for two years after I became a Christian. And I realized that my identity is not in what I do or the mistakes that I make. My identity comes in, I'm a son and daughter of the Most High. And it wasn't a D on my chest, I realized. It was a big F, forgiven. And I want to encourage some people in this room that you've been walking around with shame and guilt and Jesus hung on a cross, not just to forgive your sin, but to take all of your sin and shame. He became our guilt offering. He became all, he became divorce on the cross. He became the adulterer on the cross. Why? To remove the shame so that he can carry it. If I get everyone to stand, I want to pray for some people because this is a heavy message that our church needs. If you can bow your heads and close your eyes. God, I pray for the single people in the room that feel this pressure, this burden to go find that person, to go find their spouse. God, remind them that the burden is not on finding but becoming. Lord, I pray for the couples in this room where they would describe their relationship as it's complicated, it's messy. They have friendship issues. They have intimacy issues. God, remind them and show them that they have foundation issues. That they need to be better Christians. They need to be better friends. I pray for that third category of people, God. Those that have a broken or fractured relationship. They want out. God, remind them. Because I can't speak to people, God. I can't convince them. Only you can do that, Holy Spirit. God, give them the strength to stay in a marriage that they think is dead and broken. Remind them, God, that Jesus was dead in a tomb for three days, and what seemed dead was a miracle because three days later he came back. If you can raise your dead son from the grave, you can raise a dead marriage too. Pray for those, God, that are seeking and wondering who this Jesus is. Let me quickly explain the gospel. The gospel is not about me and you doing things, not about religious activities, not about us obeying anything to, to be holy before a holy God. God did all of the work so that we could be close to him. That's why God left heaven. That's why God became a man. That's why he lived a sinless life. Not to give us a book, not to give us a building with four walls. He came to die on a cross for our sin. That's the message of Christianity. That you can't obey, you can't work your way to heaven because heaven came to you. And if you want to start a relationship with this living God, his name is Jesus. He wants to walk with you the way he walked with Adam in the garden. He wants to talk to you. 
He wants to do life with you. Why? Because he's a person. With every eye closed and every head bowed, if that's you, and you want to start a relationship with this living God, I'm going to count to three. I want you to shoot your hand up. We have a book for you called Following Jesus. We want to help you on this journey of faith. One, two, three. If that's you, just shoot your hand up. Pray this out loud. Thank you, Jesus, that you love me, that you left heaven for me. Thank you, Jesus, that you you came to die for my sin. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. But I want to receive your free gift of salvation. By faith, Jesus, I believe that the cross is enough for me to be forgiven. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. Thank you, God, for that you died for me, not when I was in church, but when I was in the club, when I was living my life. Thank you, God, that your love for me is unconditional. Thank you, God, for paying my penalty. God, I repent and turn from my sin and come to you. Can we shout and say amen for the hands that went up? Thanks so much for listening. We hope this message impacted you and inspires you to draw closer to Jesus. Subscribe to this podcast and give us a follow on Instagram at Centerset Church to keep up with all that God is doing in our community. Also, we'd love to be in prayer with you. If you have any prayer requests, please send them to info at centerset.church.